I'm going to be reading from uh, Ezekiel chapter 11. I'm going to start in verse 14 and read to the end of the chapter. Let me give you just a second to flip there. For those of you who don't know, we're preaching through the book of Ezekiel. This is not a book that is normally preached through by churches. You are either discovering why or wondering why. Um, Now that we're seven weeks in, I have thought about doing like an every like seventh sermon is like a Sabbath from going through Ezekiel, um, where I just preach on something happy, you know? Um, But um, I'm going to, maybe next week, you know, we'll see. Uh, So this is actually, um, this passage this morning is one of the first passages of promise. So the first like 25 chapters of Ezekiel are all judgment and for just all kinds of different oracles of judgment and um, this passage is like one of the one passages of promise in Ezekiel 11. But don't worry, I have found a way to make it depressing. So let's, um, <laughs> let's start in verse 14. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, your brothers, your brothers who are your blood relatives in the whole house of Israel, all those of whom the people of Jerusalem have said, they are far away from the Lord. This land was given to us as our possession. Therefore say, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, although I sent them far away among the nations and scattered them among the countries, yet for a little while I have been a sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. Therefore say, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I will gather you from the nations and bring you back from the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you back the land of Israel again. They will return to it and remove all its vile images and detestable idols. I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. But as for those whose hearts are devoted to their vile images and detestable idols, I will bring down on their heads what they have done, declares the sovereign Lord. Then the cherubim, with the wheels beside them, spreading their wings, and the glory of the Lord, of the God of Israel, was above them, and the glory of the Lord went up from within the city and stopped above the mountain east of it. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the exiles in Babylonia in the vision given by the Spirit of God. And then the vision I had seen went up from me, and I told the exiles everything the Lord had shown me. So this is the end of an oracle that goes from the beginning of chapter 8 to the end of chapter 11. It's all one oracle. I have skipped over like a chapter and a half from my last sermon. I apologize. Um, I'm trying to keep you on the hook here, like listening, and um, I can't um, go through every single verse. Um, But I have been been writing some devotionals that hopefully will get published to the blog on some of these passages. I'm not spending time preaching on. High Point Church— in its 60-year history, has been in a tradition in American Christianity that's called an e- the evangelical tradition. Now, part of the problem with that is, is that in recent years, people have come to associate what that means with things that it really doesn't mean, like hypermasculinity, um, Donald Trump, um, Jesus being like totally for America and therefore against everybody else, and people who are not for the version of America that you hold in your mind. Does that make sense? That doesn't mean that um, that gospel-believing people can't be patriotic or love their country. Um, G.K. Chesterton once said, whatever country you're born in, it's like, it's, a, it's just fundamentally wrong if you don't love the land where you are. It's just something about where you live that you should appreciate it, no matter how bad it is, you know? 
And in addition to that, if you believe that there are noble things about where you are and where you live and what you celebrate, you should celebrate whatever you can celebrate nobly about wherever you live. That doesn't mean that you're denying those things that are part of the human curse that are done everywhere to people, everywhere, even if they were even profoundly worse where we live, right? Um, the, the word evangelical is actually an almost 2,000-year-old term. It did not come into existence when Donald Trump ran for office. It didn't come into existence even in the 1940s, where it came into prominence through the writings of Carl F.H. Henry, this person on the screen, or the uh, ministry of Billy Graham through Crusades. Um, what the word has meant, though, in the last couple hundred years is essentially these things. That is, Christians who believe in the historic creeds, which is a lot of Christians. Second, people who believe in the authority of Scripture, that the, the written Scriptures, that is the Bible, is the Word of God written. Third, that we believe in personal salvation. There is no group salvation. There are group dynamics, spiritually, but you have to decide yourself personally what you are going to do with the fact that Jesus has died for your sins and been raised for your justification and called you to respond to that in repentance and faith, what we call discipleship, right? And fourth, that that, and that Jesus has put an imperative on his disciples to go and tell people that and to engage them with this saving message and this new life and path of following Christ, being a disciple. Now, you might say, Nick, there's a lot of people who, like, wouldn't call themselves evangelicals who believe those things, and that is correct. That's correct. I'm not arguing they should, right? There's a lot of, for example, minority churches that for political reasons wouldn't call themselves evangelical churches, but they meet every criteria of what evangelical means, spiritually speaking. Now, one of the reasons why I bring this up is because because much of evangelicalism is what's called the revivalist tradition, that is, people preaching and trying to get people saved in large groups, there's been a really large focus oftentimes in that preaching on getting people to accept Jesus specifically in relationship to receiving divine forgiveness and escaping divine wrath. So there's a good bit of talk of heaven and hell. There's a good bit of talk of personal guilt. There's a good bit of talk of falling short of the glory of God, needing to come to God for forgiveness in order to be saved, right? And that is a fundamental part of the biblical message. For example, in this passage in Colossians, it says, the son he loves, that is Christ, right? And it says about Jesus, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And there, forgiveness of sins is appositional to salvation. That is, they're the same thing in that sentence. Salvation and the forgiveness of sins are the same thing, right? Now, that's not true everywhere the word salvation is used. And the problem with that is, is that um, when we, sometimes in this tradition that we're broadly connected to, um, speak about Christianity in such a way as the main thing is forgiveness of sins, on one level that's a good thing because sometimes we think of it as kind of like the golden truth, that if you get this truth right, you'll get all the others, right? So if somebody comes to Jesus in repentance, recognizing that they need forgiveness and that they've done wrong and they should turn to God and receive his forgiveness, the assumption is if in that they really come to God, they will have come to God, and then everything else God has to give will then flow into their lives. So if you can get people to come to forgiveness, they will come to the rest of Christian salvation. That's natural, right? Now, the problem, though, is, is that if the invitation is just and mainly to forgiveness, that's all the vision of Christian faith we're inviting people to. And when people hear that message alone, with it, without it connected to the other parts of Christian salvation, they don't want to believe it oftentimes. That's a problem, right? Like, when we, when we put forward Christian faith that way, pe people's reaction to it is often that that message has insufficient beauty and repulsive implication. Let me just read a quick paragraph so that I don't go on about this. They are not drawn to it because it is insufficiently beautiful and 
seemingly distant and unreal because it focuses on future wrath, right? Like, what are we inviting people to? To receive forgiveness relative to God who they can't see and can't feel for a future moment of coming wrath that they think either is far distant and outside of their immediate sense experience or may not happen at all. And so to conceptualize that as this profoundly beautiful thing that you'd want to give all of yourself to is very difficult for people to do emotionally, morally, and psychologically, right? So don't find it beautiful. They're not drawn to it. It's not honey. Do you know what I'm saying? And then secondly— they're repulsed by it because it claims to pardon the wicked while leaving them wicked, right? Because see, they don't know the rest of the Christian message. They haven't read the whole Bible. They don't have a comprehensive understanding of Christian theology. They, what they have in their mind are bad Christians that they don't like because those are the Christians that are the most memorable to them. Do you understand? Like, think about what you remember from your childhood. Was it every night when your mom tucked you in, if you had one and they tucked you in? Was it all the good things? Or was it the worst moments that traumatized you enough for you to remember them? That's also how people remember Christianity. <laughs> they remember the traumatizing moments of the worstly labeled Christian people and what those people did and how much they didn't like it. And they don't realize that's a completely terrible set of experiences by which to determine belief. Do you understand? That's just how we're wired as human beings. Okay, I was going to read this. That's not working. Okay, let's go on. <clears throat> this can be associated in our minds with ritual perpetrators that multiply misery and trauma by perpetrating abuse and then apologizing, asking forgiveness, and then promptly perpetrating again. Such repentance and forgiveness in abusive relationships is a, is a manipulation rather than a beauty of divine love. And in fundamentalist homes and social groups, this kind of abuse and manipulation can masquerade as the highest form of spirituality. This human reality has driven many irreparably from the faith and may keep many others from entering into it. Now, the good news is, is this is not just a—this is an experience that people have because it's real. The good news is this, has, this is completely um, opposite of the Christian message of what God is doing in salvation with human creatures. In fact, the scriptures themselves critique that kind of easy salvationism and the kind of fundamentalist and legalistic self-justifying spiritualities that allow people to perpetrate repeatedly without experiencing transformation and to believe that they're right with God and to believe that they're doing things great and to believe that their spirituality is real. Right? Jesus said of the highest version of Pharisaical legalism, you go throughout the entire earth to make a convert and then you try to make them twice the son of hell that you are. Right? And so— it's in, one of the things that I think is really helpful is that if, like, we, we all deep down know that this is true about the nature of forgiveness. So, so think about this for a second. I want to do just a quick thought experiment about forgiveness. Imagine that there's two people that have hurt you, okay? Two people who have hurt you, and God says, okay, now normally there's a straightforward biblical command that you must forgive everyone. But in this particular case— you only have to forgive one of these people. And you get to pick which one, okay? So person A <clears throat> hurt you on a scale of 1 to 10 at 7.6, okay? On a scale of 1 to 10, they hurt you at the level of 7.6, right? <clears throat> now, in addition to that, since that hurt happened, that person has seen they're wrong in a way that's convincing to you. They've admitted it. They've made whatever restitution is possible. You really believe they will never hurt you in a way like this again, and the person has become more kind and thoughtful than you'd ever known them before. 
as a result of grappling with the wrong that they did to you, okay? Person B hurt you at a level of 4.3 on a 1 to 10 scale. 4.3, right? But thinks what they did is trivial, admits to no wrongdoing, hasn't learned, will certainly do something harmful like this to you again. He thinks it's mostly your fault, and he's always defensive and accusatory if you try to negotiate for anything in the future about how you'll be relating to each other. Now, you have to forgive one of these people. Who do you pick? Right? Now, thanks for playing. I appreciate it. Right? <laughs> Most normal human beings, religious or not, are going to pick person A. Now, person A hurt you 33% more than person B. Right? They're worse. So why do you pick them? And the answer is, in your capacity to release forgiveness has to do with forgiveness relationship to other things relative to the creature being forgiven. What's going to happen here? What's the future? Is it going to change? Will there be restoration? Right? And intuitively, even those of us who are not even believers aren't changed by Christ, we just know intuitively that like, it's more right to forgive even a worse crime if a complete transformation happens to somebody, including their reception of forgiveness for full restoration. But even within a, a comparably more minor crime, if nothing changes, if there's no completeness to the transformative process, forgiveness will avail nothing. You're just going to get more perpetration. And the person will grow worse and worse and worse in their self-deception about their own goodness. Right? And one of the things that I love about this passage in Ezekiel is that, do you realize that this enormous promise of future salvation is given? to people who are in the worst possible place that they can be. And that promise does not even mention forgiveness. It's one of the greatest themes of salvation is forgiveness. God forgives in the death and resurrection of Christ. He justifies you, so you don't have to justify yourself, right? But like, think about this. This huge New Testament spiritual promise of radical salvation, which God will do amazing things to people who've lost everything, does not even mention it. Right? Which means Christian salvation can be talked about without any reference to salvation or to forgiveness. Why is that? Because God's remedy in salvation is larger and more complete than forgiveness. Right? It is, a, it is a solution or a remedy for our, the problem of our being, not just the result of our bad being, which incurs guilt. So no human could be saved, according to Scripture, without a remedying of our guilt. It's impossible. We have to be justified and therefore forgiven through repentance and the work of Christ. However, the work of Christ as a whole work of salvation—remember, salvation means deliverance. It doesn't mean forgiveness. Right? It means lost. You were completely destroyed. You had no hope. You could not deliver yourself. And something or someone delivered you in some way. You were saved. Don't allow your definition of the word saved to be narrowed to just divine forgiveness. Does that make sense? Now, this is one of the reasons why when Jesus is talking to legalistic people, he doesn't say—he doesn't call himself a lawyer. He calls himself a doctor. Right? He's talking to legalistic people, and he said, listen, I realize you don't want to come to me. And the reason you don't want to come to me is, is that 
um, you think you're well. And so you don't realize you need a doctor. But people who know that they're sick, right, because they've sinned and incurred guilt, right, but they know that that guilt isn't their only problem. It actually points to a deeper problem of their being, which is a sickness. And Jesus says, I've come as a doctor for them, not just as a judge. So, um, that leads to both a good thing and a problem. So the good thing is, is that Christian salvation is more holistic. It's a complete remedy for our problems of being. It is as broad as the human person is. It relates to the whole of our relationship with God and others and ourselves and creation. It's, it's both complex and yet simple. All of, here's, the, here's the other problem, though, is, is that if you don't want God, the problem now is, is that you don't want God for a lot more than before. Do you understand? If you were like, all that, all that hocus-pocus in church about like future damnation and God judging ultimately and us incurring spiritual guilt and blah, 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 future, maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. Like, I just don't really care about that. That doesn't affect my personal life right now. Problem is, that version of Christianity that you're pushing off actually has very little to do with actual Christianity. And instead, the gospel of salvation, the message of what God wants to do to, to, to remedy us covers everything in your humanity at all times of your existence, which means it's everything right now. And, and that means that if you either are trying to push off God or if you want God a la carte, you want God to be involved in some things and not other things, you got problems. Because he's just not that kind of deity. All the pagan idols were that kind of deity. You could worship just the God of fertility if you wanted to get pregnant, or you wanted to get wealthy and you wanted your, like, your sheep to have more babies. You know what I mean? You would worship just the God, or if you're going to give a speech, you could worship just the God of good speaking. Right? Or, do you know what I mean? Like, you could go, if you need to make a hard decision, you could go and you could give a votive offering to the God of wisdom. You, you could use the gods because the gods were for one thing. It was like exactly what people would do if they were making up gods. Like, I don't want a god that meddles too much. Let's get them all split up and I will just go to them for the thing that I need. And the idea that there's a god who is completely whole relates to everything in your life and relates to you in complete entirety so that you could have comprehensive union with him spiritually is not the kind of God sick human beings desire. But it's the kind of God that exists and speaks and shows himself to us and calls us to himself. Does that make sense? So I'm going to go over the two things in this. One is that God's salvation is a remedy of complete being to our depravity, everything that's wrong with us. And it's a remedy to everything that is part of the image of God in us, which is meant to prepare us for ultimate glorification, union with God being everything that we were meant to be times eternity, right? So quickly, the first thing is, is that God's salvation is the complete remedy for our depravity. He's, he's not just after forgiving our sins. He's after healing or remedying everything that's gone wrong in the fall, everything that's harming us under the curse, everything that's breaking down our being and our capacity to be image bearers in the world, right? So, there's like six things in this passage. I'm going to go over them pretty quickly. The first is the presumption that we don't need it. The presumption that we're good. Or the presumption, even spiritually speaking, that we're chosen. So in verse 15, it says, this, Son of man, your brothers, even your brothers, your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, all of them who are with the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Go far from the Lord. To us this land is given for a possession. Do you see what they're saying? They're saying, Ezekiel and all the people who are related to him are in the Kabar Canal, which is like, it's a 900-mile journey from Jerusalem to the Kabar Canal where they were, all 9,000 of them. Do you see? And so 
God's saying to Ezekiel, you see all the people of Israel who live there, they're, what they say about you, the Israelites that are in exile, they say, you guys go as far as you want away because God has given Jerusalem to us, those who are still here. Right? We're the chosen ones. Like, we're the awesome ones. We're good. We're going to be fine. Right? They think, A, that they're chosen by God, and they think, B, nobody can touch them. If you read earlier in chapter 10, they talk about, like, a cooking pot and a fire, and it's kind of a weird metaphor. But meat is, like, very expensive, right? Especially in the ancient world. And so you would use a pot, which were actually not super easy to get, to protect the meat and to make it savory in the midst of a fire that burns up everything else. So they're like, don't you see, guys? Like, we're in Jerusalem. Babylon will come, and they'll destroy everything, and they'll kill everyone, and then what happens is land prices are going to go, like, through the floor, and we're going to get rich. Right? So, pragmatically and atheistically, and in terms of human greed, they were like, we're good, man. And spiritually, they thought, we're in the chosen city of God. We're chosen. Either fortune or God or whatever has chosen us. And what happens in this passage, right, is that the glory of God— leaves the temple, judges the city, and then leaves and goes to the East Mountain and departs. And he says, um, you're not going to be saved in the city. We're going to talk about this next week, right? You're not chosen. Actually, the people I sent into captivity and suffering are going through the trial by which I'm changing them so that they can come back and be fit to possess the land, right? These next verses say this. They will, re- they will return and remove all the vile images and detestable idols. I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. They will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. Right? So you can—sorry, verse 25 is— but at, sorry, 21. But as for those whose hearts are devoted to their vile images and detestable idols, I will bring down on their own heads what they have done, declares the sovereign Lord. So you can think of it this way, Right? There, there are these five things in addition to presumption that he's saying, like, these things have to be cured. These are—and if you look at the scriptures as a whole—I've got something on my foot. Um, if you look at the scriptures as a whole, you see this throughout them. This is not just special to the people in Ezekiel's time. This is true for people everywhere, right? One is the, that they're in the company of corrupting idols. Human beings want, rather than want to get rid of the things in their life that are actually corrupting them. That's part of our corruption. We don't want to be free of them. We don't want them to go away. We put them in situations and stations in our lives so that they're there for us because we rely upon them. But the more we look at these images, the more we make ourselves more in their images. And we become violent, detestable ourselves. And so that's a really problematic dynamic, isn't it? Right? The second is, is that we have a divided heart. Right? The, the, ver- the, the phrase translated— um, but those whose hearts are devoted to their vile images and sensible idols. That, it doesn't actually literally say devoted to. It says go after. That language to go after is used throughout the Old Testament, specifically in reference to spiritual adultery. That we were, we are gods. We belong to him. He loves us. He's put his affection on us. And yet our hearts want to run off with somebody else. We'll see this especially in chapters 16 and 23 in the book of Ezekiel, but you see it throughout the book of the Old Testament, especially in the book of Hosea, obviously, where that's the theme of the entire book. He, there's, some, there's a problem. Our hearts can't stay focused. We can't stay focused on the most meaningful thing. We keep looking away. It's like trying to explain a moral doctrine to a six-year-old. Like, it's just, like after the second sentence, if you get that far, they're like, look, it's a hamster. You know, like, 
We just, we have our, our hearts either for just reason of distraction or because we're uncomfortable looking at God, which we are. Um, whether it's our, our, we don't like going through the process of our lives and facing the thing God's called us to face. So we want a shortcut. So we look away from God and what we can know about his will. And we look to another way to do it, which means we turn back to our idols and their corrupting influences, right? And so on. We have a heart that's divided. We also have a sickness of spirit, right? He says, I'm going to give them a new heart, an undivided heart and a new spirit. And then the way it's written in the original text is that the next, the next clause is explaining that one. What does it mean to—like, how are we going to receive an undivided heart and a new spirit? And he says, here's what I'm going to do. The operation of that is I will take out their heart of stone, and I will give them a heart of flesh. And that heart of flesh—now, the idea here is hardness versus softness, right? But that doesn't mean weakness. In no place in Scripture does it look like God is intentionally trying to make anybody weaker. The problem is, is that we're already weak in all kinds of ways that don't have to do with our sin. We're morally weak. We're emotionally weak. We're, we're weak in courage to do the things that are so important in our lives that actually matter to other people and to ourselves and to God. We're really weak when it comes to that. And so part of the problem with that is our heart, our heart is hardened. And as we looked at a number of passages, what that mainly means is this. We think having an undivided heart is trivial. I think it's no big deal. That we have no moral weight about us. It doesn't break us. It doesn't hurt us. It doesn't humiliate us. It doesn't bring us back to really consider what we've done, how we're living, what our life means, how we have and haven't related to God, whether or not we're in the presence of corrupting idols. We just don't care about any of it. It doesn't even hardly occur to us because our conscience is so hardened that we're not sensitive to the things that could redirect us. Namely, the truths of God, the presence of God, the voice of conscience flowing through the divine image that God is empowering through his own work. And so without a softening, right, a new heart, so to speak, we, un, we can't respond to God. We won't turn to him. We don't have anything to combine faith with because we just, we're just too flippant and insensitive, right? And then last, or fourth, is that it leads us to become unjust people because we act pragmatically. We're justifying ourselves. We want what we want. We have to get what we need to get. People are against us. They're not helping us. They're not supporting us. Right? And so we're just—we have to do what we have to do. And those things really hurt people all around us. Right? And he says, right, he's like, the, the result of salvation is, is that they're going to listen to my decrees and they're going to be careful to follow my laws. Well, what are God's laws? Are they just trying to make your life miserable or difficult? No. All of God's laws are messages of justice. That, that is giving people what they're due, giving God what he's due, giving yourself what you're due, and giving others what they're due. Every statement is a statement of justice. And so— being careful to obey God's decrees means a person would be enlivened to behave justly and to act justly and to love justice and to be careful to do it, not just like blasé about doing it. And what he's saying is, is that this has to be healed because the opposite is true. Right? He says, what does he say idolatry brings in earlier chapters? Idolatry always brings injustice and ultimately to the point of violence. That's what it always brings. And then what that does is it gets us ultimately to a place where we're completely unfit to know God. In no way, under no dynamic, by no angle, in no faculty, by no formation of character, and by no moral or spiritual choice, are we able to connect with God because we are opposed to him on every level, in every way, by every thought, in every juncture, in all we do. Now, isn't that awesome? I mean, I mean, think of this. Like, if I go to the doctor and I am profoundly sick, okay, like I, like I know there's something wrong with me that's going to kill me, 
I do not want them to look at one symptom and assume there is a fairly shallow cause and give me something that mediates the symptoms. I, that's not what I want. That's not what I need, right? I want them to be like, look, if you just had this problem or just this problem, I would have thought it was this. But because you have all five of these problems, look, you've got this condition, which is very serious, which is a profound treatment that looks like this. And it's going to be painful, but ultimately, you can be healed. The idea that, like, this is what God says has two great effects. One, it means that he is going to do something about all of this. All of this matters to him. When he heals and saves, he's going to deliver, not just from guilt. His goal in deliverance is to li- deliver us from all of this. Every piece of it. Every part of it. So that we would not be depraved, but we would become fit for glorification. Does that make sense? And there's a second reason which just flew out of my mind. So we're going to move on to the next slide. <laughs> right? Okay. I'm going to skip that for now. The second thing is, is that God's salvation is the complete restoration, for, our complete restoration for our glorification, right? God not only wants to destroy the curse and put away what's called the flesh in the Bible, that is the part of us that, that, that reflexively betrays God, but, but he wants to actually enliven and remake the image of God in us such that we are fit for him. Because that's, that's really the whole point of salvation. I, I was, we were talking to a couple, I was talking with a, um, a psychologist, and I were talking with a, in a pre-marriage appointment this week about, um, about the marital act. Can I just leave it there? You know what I'm talking about? Um, and she said, helpfully, she said, one of the things I realized is that the heartbeat of Christian life is sacrifice and service. And so when I think about my relationship with my husband that way, I don't think of it like in a flippant way. I think of it as a relationship of sacrifice and service, and it completely changes my attitude, and it's really helped our relationship a lot, right? And I was like, and, and I was like okay, that, that's, that is definitely true. But then, but then I said, okay, that is true, and it's specifically true in terms of practice right now. But, but remember, what that act represents is not just our service of each other. It represents union. The transcendental meaning of that act within that context is that it represents union that is complete and comprehensive, unbreakable, even if it's changing through time. And so therefore what that means is is that sacrifice in the present under the curse serves the ultimate image of God purpose, which is union, right? Our ultimate purpose with God is not that we will sacrifice for him forever and he will sacrifice for us forever. A point will come where sacrifice will end. He will stop sacrificing for us. We will stop sacrificing for him. We will even stop sacrificing in many ways for each other. And we will have union with God. We will be made fit for him by his own work. And he will be perfectly fitted for us because we will be what we were created to be. And he created us to be fitted for him. There will be union. And that state of of being utterly fit for union and enjoyment fully ourselves, fully relating to God that is fully himself forever is glorification, right? And as you work through this passage, God is is pointing us to the fact that he cares and is active in all of the places where we could be easily pessimistic relative to that salvation, right? One is in the area of just that he cares about us. Right? Like, there are people who are Christians who believe that, you know, I live to serve God and to suffer for God and to be poor for God and to, like, God doesn't want, like, me to be happy pretty much. He just wants me to, like, gut it out like Jesus did. And, um, and that's just—I mean, that, and that's fair. He can ask that of me because he's done everything for me. He could ask anything of me. And, like, I 
actually need to learn to take pleasure in the suffering of following him. And like, that is like 64.3% correct. Like, there's a, there's a profound real truth there. But what the problem is, is that like God expresses all through the scriptures in ways that people like that find distasteful his desire to give to us what we need. Our longings, and some of those longings, the things we long for, are remedies to our depravities, right? Sometimes I, we have a sickness, and we want to alleviate the pain of that sickness, and we want something, and we long for it, and we're like, that's a core longing. It's not a core longing. It's a longing that is aggravated by your place in, in your sickness and sin at the moment. And it, better to be healed and relieved of your need for it, right? And to find it in its better form. <clears throat> but there are things in us where we—there are ineradicable desires and needs in us, like the desire for security, the desire for a future, the desire to know and be known, to love and be loved, the desire to do something and be part of something we think is significant. Those are all fundamental human core needs that didn't arrive after the fall when we became emotionally broken. They exist in us as part of our good nature. And so when God speaks to us, he doesn't treat those things as though they are weaknesses, as though they're evil, as though they're terrible. He speaks to them as though they're critically important, and he will meet those needs. Right? So I'm going to move through these quickly. Sorry. The two biggest ones are, he says, those people that I sent 900 miles away into Babylon, they're far from the, both the citadel and the temple. Right? The citadel is the thing that protects people. Right? The walls of the city, and the temple is where God's presence is supposed to be. And he's—and that is, it's the sanctuary, right? It's the place that you're safe. And he says, yeah, I sent them away, but there's actually only one safe place for my people. And right now it's in Babylon, because I am their sanctuary in that place. He knew that the physical sanctuary was going to fall. In fact, he was going to make it fall, because he was making a point. But he said, while my people are in Babylon, I will be their safe place. I will be their sanctuary for a little while. But then, ultimately, I will call them back, and I will give them back the land. And you may not know this yet, but when you get to the end of Ezekiel, he doesn't just give them back the land as it is. He says, I will come, and I will remake the land, and I will remake the temple. I will glorify the land. So I'm going to give you back a place, a home, and then I'm going to glorify the home too. Which points forward to how Christ promises not just to glorify us, but to bring us into a glorified home, which is a good longing right? The second thing is results, right? He says, they will return and remove all the vile images and the detestable idols. And then he says a few verses later, they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws, and they will be my people, and I will be their God. Do you see the point there? He's saying, there are going to be at least two results when I get done with people. One is, they will cleanse themselves from that which defiles them and kills them and hurts them. They will come back. He says, he he doesn't say, I will go through the holy and I'll get rid of every idol. He says, when I bring people back from that captivity, they will go through the land and get rid of everything that was defiling them. They will choose to do it themselves. Right? That has always been the mark of biblical spirituality and true Christianity. Right? Church discipline, like, or people rebuking you is like supposed to be the last line of defense, right? Like, part of what happens when the Spirit is working in somebody is they, they recognize what God calls sin They recognize it as a defiling, harming, and poisoning thing. They recognize that it incurs proper guilt. It hurts other people, and it defiles ourselves. And they go, I don't want this anymore. And they take that idol, and they throw it away. And that is a mark of transformation. It is a result, right? The second result is, he says, they will come back, and they will 
follow my decrees and they will be careful to obey. Right? Do you see that word? Careful to keep my laws? Like it's one thing to be like, yeah, I'll do the minimum. But see, like the, these people who he's going to change, they're going to so understand the depth of their relationship with God, the integrity they have to have in themselves as a divine image bearer, and the relationship they have with other people and even the land that they live in, that they'll realize that every commander decree of God is an expression of justice. And they won't just do the minimum. They will go beyond. They will say, no, this command actually implies that I would do this thing even beyond it. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be careful to do everything, not just that even it says, but that it implies, because I realize that this is a question of goodness and justice and beauty. And I want to do it because I belong to the God who creates and redeems for goodness and justice and beauty and glorification ultimately. And so, I, I no longer have to have my arm twisted. I no longer have to be threatened. I have become the kind of person who wishes to be careful to do everything that God has commanded. Right? Now, you might be like, okay, great. That sounds—I guess that sounds good. But listen, th the reason that this is good news is because, um, because we stink at this. Like, when I, when I think of— what is discouraging to me as a Christian believer at this moment in salvation history, it's not my guilt. I don't think about that I did stuff in the past. Look, every once in a while I'll think about something, it will be embarrassing to me, and I will, I will feel a need to receive and to think about Christ's justifying work relative to my guilt. But for the most part, I think about how I stink right now. I think about, I mean, just this morning, I was trying to think about the sermon, and I'm like, I'm like, it's flashing into my mind are the present corrupting idols that are in my life right now. I'm like, man, they're tricky and they're subtle, but they're there, right? And how my, how insensitive I can be in my, how, how, how divided my use of time and my concentration is. I mean, one of the, the great giveaways of how much I struggle with having an undivided heart is my, how my concentration just wants to ping everywhere to everything but what's actually good in my life that I'm supposed to be doing what I'm supposed to be working on, who I'm supposed to be listening to, who I'm supposed to be caring for. And I look at, I look at my heart, I look at the spirit that is in me, I look at how hard or soft my heart is, I look at how careful I am to obey God's laws, not legalistically, but out of a, an internal desire to do it. And I, it's very discouraging. And to know that God has decreed that these will be the results of his salvation is encouraging to me. Like, I know I can experience more transformation in the present, and I know that God is bringing me to that increased transformation over time, and that doesn't mean—that doesn't cause me to feel like, oh, I guess I don't have to try. What it means is, like, if I try, like, something could happen. You know what I mean? Like, I see this, especially with, like, like teenagers or young people, um, especially when people have, like, hyped up their self-esteem and told them they're fabulous at things they haven't even tried yet, right? Like, they don't want to do anything because they're afraid they're going to lose their cred, right? Like, I, I, was, I was with a kid just this week. I took a couple of kids fishing, and one of them was fishing, and he, like, hooked a fish, right? Because I put him over the fish. I gave him the fishing rod. I baited his hook. I told him where to put it, and so on, right? And he, the minute he hooks the thing, he goes, I caught a fish! And I'm like, dude, not yet. You're fighting a fish. Let's focus on that and put out of our minds what we, all, what we think we are and focus on what we're doing. Does that make sense? And I thought about like that in me and in my kids and in like a lot of people, like they don't want to even try things because they think they're already good at it. And if they try it, they're going to be bad at it. And then their record will be that they're bad at it. 
And I am bad at it. You're bad at it. We're all bad at it. You're bad at Christianity. You're bad at Christianity. You're bad at Christianity. You're bad at Christianity. You're bad at it. We're all bad at this. We're bad at Christianity. We're bad at being human. We're bad at knowing God. We're bad at not feeling entitled and privileged. We're bad at um, getting corrupting idols out of our lives. We're bad at um, having an undivided heart. We're bad at having a new spirit of generosity and the purposes of God's graciousness. We're bad at being sensitive to the moral realities of the harms that we do. And we are bad at being careful to do what's just and right in our lives and to have the guts to do it. We are bad at it. And listen, if you're not sufficiently encouraged, what God says and promises to a people who have been so bad at everything for 390 years that he's throwing them into another country, into, into chaotic exile, he says, when you come back and in this future that I'm making, you will be the kind of people who do these things. You will be, right? And then the last thing, quickly, sorry, I'm taking longer than I'm supposed to, is transformation. Like, that we're going to have an undivided spirit, undivided heart, and a new spirit. And the thing that's important about this passage, I think, that is meant to encourage us, is when you get to the core of this, the transformation that will lead to the results, which will lead us to receive our core needs from God, is that God is saying at this point, that point of internal transformation, on the primary initiative level, God is doing it. He says, I will. Listen, here's what's going to happen. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will take out the heart of stone and give you the heart of flesh. I will do it, right? And that means, that means at least three things, right? It means that he, um, it means that he is the initiator by divine power, that he spiritually is doing it, right? It also means, and this is the thing people miss a lot when they're interpreting these passages, it also means that he does it by his discipline and trials, right? The whole context of this book is exile. Do you realize that? Do you understand? The whole context is pain and suffering and trials that these people will face in a foreign country in a land that isn't theirs, where they can't see how God is their sanctuary, where they're struggling with a divided heart among a people who don't care about God at all, and they have to learn to be God's people in the midst of some of the most difficult trials that will shape them through their pain. And that is part of God's initiative. He's initiating directly through power by His Spirit in your heart. He's also initiating to us in the state of exile for a little while— I will be their sanctuary before I bring them all back together to the home I've prepared for them. Do you understand? The, in the book of 1 Peter, Peter calls us exiles, right? And then lastly, by initiating faith, because in this passage, right, it's also clear that you can miss this. He says, I will do these things. And then he says in verse 21, but for those who devote themselves to idols and those who go after, right? Like there's, there's a way in which you do have to cooperate with this. Right? You have to decide you don't want to be the one who goes after the vile images. You, you don't want to remain in your sickness. You don't want to continue in where you've been. You really do want this complete, holistic, not all a cart, completely God's way, in His purposes, in His time, through His trials and suffering, but ultimately by His power, the gift of total salvation. The true cure of your depravity and the full remedy and preparation for glorification. You can see this because it ends with the glory of God, it says, it lifts off of the temple where he's leaving, and it goes to the mountain to the east, and it doesn't tell us where it goes. 
right? Now, you, wouldn't, you might not know this, but that mountain is called the Mount of Olives. It's the mountain that David went up when he was leaving Israel. It was a place where people worshiped the Lord before they worshiped him on the Temple Mount. It is the place where the glory of God departs in Ezekiel. It is the place from which Jesus ascends. It is the place in the book of Acts where angels come. After Jesus says, he says, Galilean men, why are you looking up to heaven? The same Jesus who ascended right here is going to come back in this same spot. The glory, the glory of God will return, and he will come into his temple, and he will make a new temple and a new land, and he will glorify the new people that he is making. But part of the difference is, is that we have been given much more of the clarity of the promise of how God is restoring us in the present. Because God said he, in Christ, that he would leave, but that he would send his spirit to us. And that that spirit was a regenerating, transforming, convicting, purifying. Every one of those six depravities, the New Testament explicitly states the work of the Holy Spirit is present to undo. Every single one. I can't go through them all now because we are not yet in non-time-based eternity. (laughs) But every one of those depravities, the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is said to actively abate and treat in the present right now and because we are still living under the curse in the presence of the gospel, we exist in this spirit-empowered exile in which through trials and suffering, like an exile in Babylon, we exist and are affected by our sufferings. And so if you can receive them, that is the second piece by which God uses them to make us into such creatures. And lastly, we have to choose to combine it with faith when we are told. The very last verse of this chapter is, so I went and told all of the exiles in Babylon. The message wasn't for the people in Jerusalem, ultimately. Ultimately, he arrives back in Babylon among the completely discouraged people, and he's to tell them everything he heard, so that when they hear it, they would realize they're not outside of God's will. They're not lost to him forever. They're not in a place where he doesn't care. They're not under a final damning punishment, but under disciplinary transformation, that God's spirit and glory is with them, and he will bring them back and fulfill all of their deepest needs, and he will prepare them to be glorified when he remedies the pains of their depravity to the ultimate end of union, which is how Jesus ended his ministry on earth, isn't it? Right? Like one of the last things he did was he instituted the Lord's Supper or communion. He gave us a ritual that pointed to his death and resurrection, that pointed forward to our ultimate union with him and his return. Right? And so as we get ready to do this, um, a couple things. Um, Communion or this this ritual that we do, we call the Lord's Supper communion, is the act of worshiping Jesus as God and as Savior. And so if you— if you believe that God is, that Jesus is God and Savior, then you should do this ritual as a testimony to this. And if you don't, you shouldn't. It doesn't mean you're a bad person or that we don't like you. It's an act of worship. And if you worship the God it worships, then you should worship. And if you don't, then you shouldn't because it would be dishonest, right? Um, Secondly, this is a great opportunity to believe. It's a great opportunity to believe. To believe in a whole gospel, hopefully with a fuller sense of its beauty and a recognition that it doesn't have the liabilities that you feared. And then, um, and then lastly, if you don't have a communion thingy, um, there's going to be some folks that will come up and just raise your hand, and they'll bring you one as we sing the song to sort of emotionally prepare for the Lord's Supper. God, as we, um, as we um, 
uh, sing and prepare ourselves to express and profess faith in who you are, what you've done, and all you're doing. We pray that this passage in Ezekiel 11 would ring in our hearts, that we would have the capacity by your initiative to receive its promises, and for it, uh, it to have the transforming effect unto the results spoken about in this passage, more and more. And I pray that in the midst of this, this book about um, our deserving of judgment, that you, we would see in it how it all serves salvation and union and hope and transformation. That it is all an act of love and all an act of passion, all an act of beauty in a genre we are not used to recognizing. Help us, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name.